Hello everyone and thanks for tuning in to the Latter-day Saints in Action podcast. Our introduction music comes from a song by Derek Clegg called A Strong Will is Needed from the Free Music Archives. I'm your host Matt Gardner. Now on with the show. Hi everybody, thanks for uh, tuning in today. I find it difficult to talk about race. I was born of privilege. I come from Scottish, Irish, and English ancestry with a few Germans and uh, other European ancestors mixed in. My family never owned slaves, as far as I know. I live in a state with 1% black population. I have two black Facebook friends, neither of whom I contact regularly. I'm just about as far removed from the plight of my darker-skinned brothers and sisters as anyone could be in this country. So when something like what happened to George Floyd, Ahmed Aubrey, or Breon Taylor happens, I say to myself, well, who am I to speak to this? What right as a white, privileged, middle-class male do I have to stand up and say anything about this? It was about this uh, time, about the time that this line of questioning was going through my mind that I ran across an Instagram post from a, a famous black American saying, white people are all posting TikTok videos while black people mourn. I guess I needed someone to give me permission to speak out. So, so that's what this podcast is about. But how? The question was for me, how do I speak out? I mean, I have this podcast. I, um, I write articles for Mormon Press. But what else could I do? So I began to search more and more into the lives of my black brothers and sisters. I cried as I read stories, I watched videos, and I learned. One man shared how he always brings his fluffy dog and his daughter on his walks for his protection. If he brings them along, people looking out their windows see a loving dad taking his little girl and dog for a walk. If he walks alone, they see a threat, they call the police, and he could die. Another video I watched showed an interview of a father and daughter. The girl showed what they practiced at home when confronted by the police. The daughter raises her hands in the air and says, I am Ariel Williams. I am eight years old. I am unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. At one point in the conversation while her daddy talks about being tased and thrown to the ground for no reason, she starts to cry and gives her dad a hug. The dad responds with love and understanding. I'm alive, he says. I can come hug you, and I can tuck you in every night. Another video was a black man just talking about his likes and dislikes. He says, I'm a vegan. I like to watch old musicals. Oklahoma is my favorite. After telling more and more things about himself, he ends with, I just wanted you to know me before you called the police. My wife's and my first house was in West Jordan, and shortly after we moved in, a black man bought the house next door. He was a former San Diego Chargers football player. We worked together on a few projects around his yard and mine. We repaired the fence. We dug out stumps together. Um, I didn't think much about it at the time, but one of my neighbors told me, Hey, I saw a black man hanging around your house. Yeah, he's my neighbor, I would reply. Yeah, he's a really good guy. Looking back now, I see the neighbor was trying to warn me. Because he's a black man, he must be a threat. Once I watched the videos and I took 
inventory of my own past, I wondered what else I could do. How do I teach my children? How do I retrain my own bias? I found several resources for actionable items. There was a list of 75 ideas in a Medium article about what white people can do. I'm planning on doing several of those. After a couple of nights of fitful sleep, my wife and I talked through some things we could do and we decided to donate to Campaign Zero, a group that is working on lasting systemic changes <clears throat> to how police interact with people. Others could donate to the NAACP or any other, um, like Black Lives Matter or an, any other number of networks providing help to black folks. If you can't donate, there are resources to invest time and create connections. I feel like this past week, a light turned on and I could see more clearly. In order to understand a little bit better about black folks and their plight and what they're going through, I decided to reach out to someone named Kamal Ahmad. He was on Twitter talking about the riots here in Salt Lake City. And so I just tweeted him and said, hey, will you come on the show? And he said yes. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Kamal, how are you? I'm just really glad that you're here and that you'd chat with me. I was looking through my list of Facebook friends that I could chat about this with. I don't have anybody to talk to about this. And so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just glad that you'll take some time and, and do this. Uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it. Why don't you introduce yourself for the listeners? Yeah, my name is uh, Kamal Ahmed. Um, I'm originally from Oklahoma City. My family has been living in Oklahoma since the late 1800s. I moved to Utah to coach college football at Weber State University. Once Coach Ron McBride retired, I got into the educational field. I taught for seven years. Now I am on the way to becoming an administrator in the next school year, so an assistant principal in the next school year. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. And I actually done administration of football too for a year. So it's, it's you know, it, it's something I'm, I'm used to. It's not a big jump. Then. So you grew up in, in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. How long have you lived in Utah? Uh, since 06. <laughs> 14 years, going on 15 actually. Wow. I grew up in Montana. Um, and my family, they lived in Ohio for a while. So I Okay, neat. Yeah, I played football in Kentucky. What part of Ohio? Cleveland. Okay, so, yeah, I'm from Lexington. That's only like five hours, if I remember nice. correctly. Because you're four from Cincinnati, right? About four hours from Cincinnati. That's right, yeah. I want to just kind of open it up and have a conversation about race. Tell me what it's like growing up black and what kinds of interactions have you had with the police? Do you feel like you get pulled over more? Do you feel like people look at you? Anyway, just talk about your interactions with growing up black in, in America, in Oklahoma. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great question. Growing up, we were taught that we're going to be racially profiled, get ready for it. And it was a reality. It, it came. <laughs> I mean, it happened. You know, the moment we, I started driving, the police car came behind me. I knew I was getting pulled over. Whether I, whether and sometimes I'm not, I was speeding. You know, I'm a regular teenager. Right? I was speeding. I was speeding like anyone else. But other times I, I wasn't doing anything. And you're just so nervous because you're constantly just being followed. You turn, they turn. You turn, they turn. And it, it's tough. It's tough to be under that type of pressure at that young of an age when you didn't do anything wrong. It's tough. And then you see those lights come on and your heart just sinks. When you, especially when you know you didn't do anything. That's what makes it tough. And that's the reality that, that, that we, that I had. 
I know that's the reality in the African-Americans community to this day. Did your parents teach you how to deal with the police or with regular people, uh, racist? No, my, my mother did. My father probably wasn't the best example. He had a little bit of a smart mouth. You know, I listened to my mother. I didn't want to get in trouble. But my father, he, you know, he's true to who he is. Like, he doesn't hear anyone. He didn't back down on nobody. And if someone pulled him over for no reason, he was going to let you know about it. At 16 years old, that wasn't the best way for me. And, and I knew that. But I, there were times when I did mouth off when I shouldn't have. And um, probably it got me in more trouble. Probably gotten a ticket where I wouldn't have gotten a ticket if I just would have kept my mouth closed. And, but, you know, that's what happens sometimes. Yeah, that makes sense. So as, as a white middle class male, sometimes it's hard for me to kind of know how to help, especially since I have so few interactions with black folks. And so I just, I just kind of want to have a little bit of a conversation, ask a few questions. What are some words and phrases that white people use that black people find offensive? The N-word, obviously. You know what I mean? Other than that, you know, I can't think of what comes to my head just because I haven't been a part of that culture. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a part of that culture here, but it's not necessarily white people here. In Utah, minorities have a habit of using the N-word, period. Kids of Hispanic descent, Polynesian descent, Asian descent, they'll use the N-word. And they have no idea where it comes from, where it originates from, and the trouble that it causes in society because there's not a large African-American community here. The community here is of African descent. the refugees and immigrants. That's the majority here. So they don't, so it's an educational opportunity for everyone of just what that word is and why we don't use it. It makes it tough because it's so popular in mainstream music, the mainstream just media entertainment. It makes it tough, but how people talks amongst each other doesn't mean everyone can join in on the conversation. The conversation. For instance, if two overweight people were calling each other, calling each other overweight, not as big of a deal if someone non-overweight is berating that same person, calling them over, overweight. If two women are calling each other by derogatory words for women, not as big of a deal as if a male were to come and call them that same derogatory word. It's the same with the N-word with African-Americans. It became a culture. It became a part of the culture. Everyone doesn't like it, even within our culture. But it's our culture. It's our culture. We have a right to our culture, period. Doesn't mean I use the word, but we have our, you know, our people have a right to use that word within our culture. We do. Have you, when, since you've moved to Utah, have you experienced much racism? No, you know, it depends. It, it, it depends. I haven't experienced that much, especially within Salt Lake City. My, my goodness, the city is just ideal. I have been a part of some pockets here and there. I've seen some things I didn't like. No place is perfect. Utah's not perfect, but it, it's still a great place. Salt Lake City is more ideal. When I visited Salt Lake City, I, I knew I was moving here sooner or later. Like, it, it's, it's an unreal place. What are some stereotypical beliefs that white people have around black folks? And what are some ways that black people are unintentionally <laughs> injured by or um, set back by white people? There's a stereotype of, to me, from an intelligence, from a, an, an intelligence perspective, for like, just naturally inferior people, especially intellectually. That's something that caught my eye when I'm when I when I moved here. And I don't know if it's necessarily black people in general. I think just maybe minorities in general. I don't know. But that's something that caught my eye because I'm I grew up in a more diverse state, and you know we I grew up in an area where you have 
plenty of black doctors, black lawyers, black engineers, black Ivy Leaguers. I mean, my father went to Stanford. My father went to medical school, OU medical school. So to be raised in an area where they're unaware of a large community of people who were very successful professionally, who have had a long history of academic success through their families, the long lines of, you know, Ivy Leaguers, doctors, engineers, it's eye opener, you know, it's really, you know, it's that type of deal. Like, really, <laughs> like, but you know, it's what it is. You only know what you see, you know, right? Yeah. Because you have, you're around the community because you, I mean, you, you're, you're part of the community. We haven't, within the Native Americans, Hispanics, and white population blended in with African-American population, we're just, I mean, we're around each other. We've been around each other for a long time. So it's not like, you know, here in Utah, it's no, you had the, uh, the 90s, you had the huge African immigration, or, immig- or the, 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 all the immigrants that were refugees. In Oklahoma, I mean, that was happening in the mid-1800s. Yeah, I see. So, so, so that's the difference. So you know, uh, you know, we just we just know each other. Yeah, that makes sense. I did want to ask, what business as usual type actions need to be addressed for Black people to feel like they're heard? Um, you know, I, I think it's just simple steps. It, I I don't know if it's necessarily heard as much as respected, if that makes sense. And it's little things like celebrating Black History Month, like making it a, a priority in the state of. Utah to celebrate Black History Month, which is which I know is no, it's no. Many might not understand the significance of it, but it helps prevent such issues that ha- that are happening nationwide. When we show that you know we're in support of this, here's how we're celebrating the month, etc. You know, I mean, I think it's just little things like that that show respect, and and at the same time it informs. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. The reason why I phrased it that way is because I remember when I was in Atlanta reading a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King about how riot is the voice of the unheard. I just feel like obviously off base black folks just don't feel heard, but maybe that's not it. Maybe you guys just don't feel respected. Oh yeah, no we're heard. It's it's it, I think it's a combination between care and respect. Are we cared about? Are we loved? And are we are we respected? But at the same time, have, have we earned that? And like, absolutely, we have. Um, but there are like everything else, like every ethnic group, we have our good, our bad, and everything in between. And it's easy to judge a group of people just based off what you might see on an entertainment, you know, music video or you know, something like that, judging the whole group as, you know, just nothing but entertainers, which is another, you know, athletes and entertainers, which is another popular stereotype. But you know, I mean, I mean, it's easy to do with any ethnic group. The main thing is just out, being able to outreach and spend time with one another. I mean, to be able to look at our inner circles and say, okay, what, what do our friends look like? Like, what do our friends honestly look like? Is this a representation of America? And if it's not, I really think we need to do some soul searching. I'm not saying you you have to have a diverse group of friends, but if you're constantly only around one group of people, I mean, what do you expect? So what are some ways do, that you feel like white people are blind? Um, I feel... I. I I hate to stereotype and say white white people. I, I think I should. I, I think it should be rephrased and say maybe whites who are struggling with coming to terms with better understanding African Americans because many do, like many do, like the Ron McBrides, the 
Alex Gerkes of Utah, like many, and to me, it's just simply those who interact with African Americans. You, you, you understand, you understand them. So I, I think it's, I think it's again, it just goes back to interacting and, and being able to understand by interaction, and not and not isolation. And in Utah, it, th there was isolation just for the fact that African Americans as a whole that didn't want to move here. Like Utah and Idaho weren't popular destinations. They both have had some bad stereotypes and, and and i'm sure they're unfair but they were there like i grew up here in the bad stereotypes about utah when it comes to Af people of african descent like i, I mean I, I remember when i was in seventh grade when i first heard i mean not seventh grade seven years old in oklahoma when i first heard that like hey you don't go to utah man it's a reason we're not there yeah what are some yeah. other things that you see need to change in the united states to make it more just for black folks understand our history i mean and 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 that is a very difficult thing to do for people who are not african-american especially for people of european descent in america that's hard to do it's hard to especially when you didn't necessarily have a hand to play in it it's really hard to say like why why am i having to account for something that has nothing to do with me um but historically unfortunately it does I mean, it does. I mean, we, we have to be accountable for our past. We have to be able to say as a group, as an ethnic group, this was not right. But we also have to understand why it was not right and what was not, what was not right and why that was not right. And I think that's what, it's a hard thing for people to come to terms with because that involves research and history, which takes time. That involves reading trusted sources, which is not easy to do, you know, and then just just to reiterate it it's hard to come to terms with something like that especially when you had nothing to do with it in particular it was people way before you or people before you now with in light but that goes hand in hand with the current events today i mean it hasn't i mean if anyone read just the history books of the late 1800s like if you were to read booker t washington his autobiography the challenges that we have like they haven't changed they're, they're just very similar and the the events are like just a recycle they just come in different forms but it's just a recycle of the sense of oppression it's just recycling and like the killing hasn't stopped it's been the same it just comes in different forms but it hasn't stopped the violence hasn't stopped towards African Americans. And for a long time, I mean, we couldn't retaliate. I mean, even though we did, you know, pockets here and there, but that's how you got extremist groups like the Black Panther Party that was formed and the Nation of Islam that were formed. They were formed in response to the Ku Klux Klan to protect our community. And that's how you get groups like that, extremist groups formed by not being able to address these issues, which is what we're trying to prevent. Yeah, that's really insightful. You know, I understand you're Muslim. Is that, yes. Is that right? Yes, yes, well, I am. That's really cool. I um, I actually lived in Jordan. I studied Arabic. Oh, wow, okay. Undergrad. And, and Pretty I know cool. Quite a few Muslims, and I, I love the, the religion, honestly. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, you even say it correct. <laughs> not too many people do. You know, I've, I've really, really appreciated your time, Kamal. And oh, no problem. I don't have any more questions for you. Just like a general, any other thoughts that you have? How, how else can we 
get to understand this moment? Uh, understand history. Uh, I would recommend one book to read. If, if people truly want to understand, I would highly, highly, highly recommend one book to read. And it will sum up history in America. It's, it was during the Civil Rights Movement. And what you're going to notice, many of it still carries over to, to, to today. It's called Devil in the Grove. Uh, Devil in the Grove, G-R-O-V-E. It's about a situation in the panhandle of Florida that um, Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice, was involved in. He was sent all across the United States, and especially the southern states, to provide justice to those who were falsely accused of murder, falsely accused of rape, which were the common or excuse me, rape was usually the common thing to accuse an African-American of in order to justify hanging them. So all, there was no jury or nothing. All someone said is rape and a mob came, the Ku Klux Klan or a similar mob will come and hang them. This book goes in very good detail about that, but it also highlights various situations like school, like integration in the schools and just the different battles that Thurgood Marshall had, which, catapulted him to like be highly recommended for the Supreme Court justice as the first African African American and it was just phenomenal uh, it goes up over his upbringing as being one of the top students in his law school and uh, I mean it's just phenomenal to get that perspective and the events that happened I won't ruin the book but my goodness um, my only recommendation don't read it unless you have time because you will not put the book down you won't get anything else done until you, you, you're just going to want to finish the book. It, it's just hard to put down. So I would, I would highly recommend that book, Devil in the Grove, about okay. Thurgood Marshall. You know, at uh, Latter-day Saints in Action, we actually have a book club. So I'm going to recommend that to our book club. Awesome. And uh, there's, there's a slew of other books that I've put on my book list that I never would have thought about uh, until this moment. It's kind of a wake-up call, at least for me. Maybe I've been too sheltered in my life where mm -hmm. you see somebody like that with the police officer's knee on his, on his neck, and oh, yeah. it just, it just it shocked me. It's not shocking to, to you folks because, no. you know, you've experienced it. I just, I have no words, I have no words to describe what I'm feeling because it's just, it's just so yeah. completely foreign to me. And I hate to say it on my part, it's normal for us. Like it's normal, which is why you notice in the black community, there's not outrage in the black community. Like the, it, the news portrays that, but if you really, really think about it, it's in small specific areas. It's not all across the country where it's rage. And many of the people you see on TV, as you notice in Salt Lake City, like they're, angry white people that are angry you know yeah. that are angry but in our community there's not as a whole nationwide rage now we're upset we're angry we're hurt we're mad but you're not seeing rage towards violence now if that's being portrayed that's that's just not accurate if you really look at our numbers and look at how we're heavily in every single major city in the united states for the most part it's not that way we're actually the actually the actual mood is just hurt we're just hurt by it. But yeah, I'd highly recommend that book. And that, uh, you're doing a great thing, man. Keep, keep it up. Keep it up. Hey, take care. Thank you. Yeah, you too, man. We'll talk right, to you later. Bye. Yep. Bye. bye. I want to thank Kamal Ahmad for talking to me. Each conversation we have, each time we learn about the African-American community, the more we learn, the, the more our country can heal. 
and real systemic change can take place. This week, the actionable from Latter-day Saints in Action is to donate to Campaign Zero. Campaign Zero promotes changes to police policies, offering systemic solutions to systemic problems. Go to joincampaignzero.org to learn more and donate. If you can't donate, then look online for ways to learn more about our African-American brothers and sisters. Hear their stories and really get to know them. Together, we can make a difference. Okay, thanks for listening to the show. We'll catch you next time. Your heart, you never gave it a chance.